God is glorious in his saints. Welcome to the Christian Saints Podcast, where we explore the lives of the saints of the church. My name is James John Marks, recording from the city of Chicago. This week, we are exploring the Feast of the Translation from Edessa to Constantinople of the image not made by hands, which is celebrated on August 16th. This feast is the titular or patronal feast of my home parish, Christ the Savior, on North LaSalle Drive in Chicago, an Orthodox church under Bishop Daniel of the Orthodox Church in America. For an explanation of what this image was, its history, and why its relocation would warrant a feastal celebration, we turn to a narrative on the OCA website. The transfer of the icon of our Lord Jesus Christ, not made by hands, from Edessa to Constantinople, occurred in the year 944. Eusebius, in his History of the Church, relates that when the Savior was preaching, Abgar was the ruler of Edessa. He was stricken with leprosy all over his body. Reports of the great miracles performed by the Lord spread throughout Syria and even reached Abgar. Without having seen the Savior, Abgar believed in him as the Son of God he wrote a letter requesting him to come and heal him. He sent his own portrait painter, Ananias, to Palestine with this letter and commissioned him to paint a likeness of the divine teacher. Ananias arrived in Jerusalem and saw the Lord surrounded by many people. He was not able to get close to him because of the large crowd which had gathered to hear the Savior. Then he stood on a high rock and tried to paint Christ's portrait from afar, but this attempt did not succeed. Then the Savior saw him, called him by name, and gave him a short letter for Abgar in which he praised the ruler's faith. He also promised to send his disciple to heal him of his leprosy and to guide him to salvation. Then the Lord asked for some water and a cloth to be brought to him. And after washing his face, he dried it with the cloth, and his divine countenance was imprinted upon it. Ananias brought the cloth and the Savior's letter to Edessa. Reverently, Abgar pressed the holy object to his face and received partial healing. Only a small trace of the terrible affliction remained until the arrival of the disciple promised by the Lord. This was St. Thaddeus, an apostle of the Seventy, who is celebrated on August 21st, who preached the gospel and baptized Abgar and all the people of Edessa. Abgar attached the holy napkin to a board and placed it in a gold frame adorned with pearls. Then he placed it in a niche above the city gates. On the gateway over the icon, he inscribed the words, O Christ God, Let no one who hopes on thee be put to shame. For many years, the inhabitants had the pious custom of bowing down before the icon whenever they went forth from the gates. Later, one of Abgar's great-grandsons, who ruled Edessa, fell into idolatry and decided to remove the icon from the city wall and to replace it with an idol. In a vision, the Lord ordered the bishop of Edessa to hide his icon. The bishop came by night with his clergy, lit a lambada before the icon, and placed a ceramic tile in front of the icon to protect it, and then he sealed the niche with bricks. As time passed, the people forgot about the icon. But in the year 545, when the Persian emperor Chizroses besieged Edessa and the city's position seemed hopeless, The most holy Theotokos appeared to Bishop Eulabius and ordered him to remove the icon from the sealed niche, saying that it would save the city from the enemy. When he opened the niche, 
the bishop found the holy Mendelion, and the lampada was still burning before the icon, and an exact copy was produced upon the tile protecting the icon. The Persians lit a huge fire outside the city walls. Bishop Eulobios carried the icon not made by hands around the city walls, and a violent wind turned the flames back on the Persians. The defeated Persian army retreated from the city. In his church history, the 6th century writer Evagrius Scholasticos refers to the Holy Mandilion, or napkin, as the icon made by God. In the year 630, Arabs seized Edessa, but they did not hinder the veneration of the Holy Napkin, the fame of which had spread throughout the entire East. In the year 944, the Emperor Constantine Porphyrganitos wanted to transfer the icon to Constantinople, so he paid a ransom to the emir of the city. With great reverence, the icon of the Savior not made by hands, and the letter which he had written to Abgar were brought to Constantinople by clergy. On August 16th, the icon of the Savior was placed in the Pharos Church of the Most Holy Theotokos. There are several traditions concerning what happened later to the icon not made by hands. According to one, Crusaders stole it during occupation of Constantinople sometime in the early 13th century, but the ship on which the sacred object was taken perished in the waters of the Sea of Marmora. According to another tradition, the icon not made by hands was transported to Genoa in the year 1362, where it is preserved in a monastery dedicated to the apostle Bartholomew. It is known that the icon not made by hands repeatedly produced exact copies of itself. One of these, named On the Tile, was made when Ananias hid the icon in the wall on his way to Edessa. Another imprinted on a cloak wound up in Georgia. Possibly the various traditions about the original icon is explained by the existence of these several exact copies. During the time of the iconoclast heresy, the defenders of the holy icons, who shed their blood for them, sang the troparion to the icon not made by hands. In proof of the validity of venerating icons, Pope Gregory II sent a letter to the Byzantine emperor in which he mentioned Abgar's healing and the sojourn of the icon not made by hands at Edessa as a commonly known fact. The image of the icon not made by hands was put on the standards of the Russian army in order to protect them from the enemy. In the Russian Orthodox Church, it is a pious custom for a believer to read the troparion for the icon of the Savior not made by hands when entering the temple together with other prayers. Unlike the Shroud of Turin, which is still in the possession of the Church of Rome, the image not made with hands has, as we have just read, been lost to the mysteries of time. As such, it was never subjected to modernist inquiry regarding its veracity. Because it lacks the scholastic tradition found in the Roman Church, orthodoxy has never been particularly concerned with engaging the contemporary structures of science or history. For example, there is a monastery in Ethiopia which has in its possession the Ark of the Covenant as well as some other similar relics from the era of the First Temple, Israelite and Judahite religion. Rather than showing it to journalists and allowing it to be examined and tested by chemists and archaeologists to prove to the world that it is genuine, the monks of this community keep the Ark hidden away so that it can be given the reverence it is due as a place where God's presence was manifest on earth. The objects are venerated, not scrutinized. The ancient perspective on such things is, if you treat it as though it is the holy object you believe it to be, it becomes that holy object, even if a time machine and a video camera could somehow demonstrate that it is not. Many Orthodox communities have small slivers of the true cross 
And again, these are not subjected to scrutiny. They are venerated with extreme reverence. This can in fact be taken even a step further when one considers recently constructed crosses, which are also shown reverence as though we are at the very feet of Jesus as he suffers for all of creation. Consequently, there is, in a sense, no need to prove there ever existed a piece of fabric which had the face of Jesus Christ embedded in it. As this narrative does not occur in any of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' incarnate life on earth, some might be inclined to dismiss this idea as merely legendary. The historic reality is not what is important. What do we learn from this account, regardless of its historicity? We can provide references to material in the Bible which demonstrates such a healing icon is not somehow contrary to Christian tradition. We will begin with the eighth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, in which we find the account of the healing of the woman with the flow of blood. We will begin with verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he besought him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. And as he went, the people pressed round him. And a woman, who had had a flow of blood for twelve years, and had spent all her living upon physicians, and could not be healed by anyone, came up behind him, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the multitude surrounds you and presses upon you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone forth from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Next, we will read from the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, about the blind man whose eyes were healed with clay. This begins at the very beginning of chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. We must work the works of him who sent me, while it is day. Night comes when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and anointed the man's eyes with the clay, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and came back, seeing. The neighbors... And those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. And others said, No, but he is like him. And he said, I am the man. And they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Next we will read in the fifth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, where we have accounts of the apostles being capable of healing people in a wide variety of ways. We will begin with verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high honor, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, 
multitudes both of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the street, and laid them on beds and pallets, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the town around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now we will move on to the 19th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, in which we find healings done by St. Paul, beginning with verse 11. And God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were carried away from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. From these accounts, it is clear God's healing power can flow in the world in any way it chooses, and there are many times when this way includes physical matter, in particular pieces of fabric, which have been blessed with the touch of holy hands. Beyond these few examples, church history is crowded with accounts of healing brought about by holy places, the touch of holy people, or by the presence of relics. While none of this in any way proves the image made without hands existed, it should at least make us comfortable the existence of such a cloth would in no way represent a crisis for the faith. On the contrary, it is well within the tradition the evangelists and the apostles have handed down to us. But what about the image itself as an object? Does giving honor to a piece of cloth, does trusting in its power to heal, present a problem for Christianity? Is this not obviously a violation of the second of the Ten Commandments regarding graven images? For some Christian communities, especially contemporary Protestant communities in the United States, which sketch their religious context from the Congregationalist movements of England's late 16th and early 17th centuries, the very idea of a holy image is problematic in and of itself, regardless of any healing properties such an image is claimed to hold. This is a tradition coming out of the interpretation of both scripture and history, which is convinced the second commandment, as it's found in Exodus chapter 20, forbids the use of any imagery in the worship of God Most High. Let us re-familiarize ourselves with the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your manservant or your maidservant, your cattle, nor the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or his maidservant, or his ox, or his ass, or anything that is your neighbor's. However, if we read this text as it is actually given, rather than as we more commonly do in a paraphrased bullet point fashion, something emerges which is quite crucial. What if we hear the following, not as three commandments, but as one commandment with significant context 
as explanation as to why the commandment has merit. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Read like this, it becomes clear the commandment is not merely to eschew imagery, but is to avoid the idolatrous worship of inferior gods. The Hebraic peoples were unique in the ancient world with regard to their relationship with their God, and not primarily because they only were supposed to worship one. The traditional understanding of the beginning of the 11th chapter of Genesis, the story of the Tower of Babel, is not simply a fable about how the diversity of human language came into existence, but is an explanation for the distinction Hebrew people make between themselves and Gentiles, that is, the nations. In this passage, God scatters the people into nations. Unfortunately, these nations begin to worship various fallen celestial beings, demons, as if they were gods. This is the biblical explanation were the origins of what would later come to be called paganism. The calling of Abram in the next chapter, chapter 12 of Genesis, the covenant that God cuts with him in chapter 15, the promise his descendants will be like the stars, which is to say, like the celestial beings, is the creation of a new nation, not under the sway of demons, but in direct relationship to the King, God Most High. The destiny of these people will be to replace these fallen celestial beings in God's council, to rule justly over creation as St. John saw in his revelation. Much of the narrative, from Exodus until the exile into Babylon, is the repeated failure of the Hebraic people to remain true to their covenant to God Most High, and their falling into the idolatrous worship of their neighbors. There is little doubt why the beginning of the Ten Commandments is focused so forcefully on requiring fidelity to their God. And yet, when this same God instructed Moses on how to construct the tabernacle, he gave instructions on how to decorate it with images, and not merely images, but images of celestial beings. From the 25th chapter of Exodus we find, Then you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And then in the following chapter we find, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet stuff. With cherubim skillfully worked shall you make them. Taking things even a step further than this, in the account given in the 21st chapter of Numbers, when the Hebrews in the wilderness are beset upon by venomous snakes for their grumbling against God, the solution given to their predicament is to construct a bronze serpent on a staff toward which they must all turn in order to be delivered of the deadly poison. However, to be fair to this contemporary view of a prohibition of images in worship, there was a strong belief in scholarship for many centuries believing the Jewish people of the Second Temple period, which is to say, after the return from exile, were strictly anti-iconic as this is the era of Hebraic culture from which early Christianity arose, it would then seem reasonable to believe the earliest Christian traditions would also be anti-iconic, 
with the tradition of iconography arising after Rome became a Christian empire and certain pagan habits crept into our worship and practices. However, in the early 20th century, ancient synagogues began to be excavated, which made it clear the Jews of the Roman Empire had no qualms whatsoever about imagery in their places of worship, despite being surrounded by idolatrous behavior on all sides. Herod's temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD, and the Jews were expelled from Jerusalem. From this point, a crisis arose in which the very core aspects of Jewish life, the keeping of the Mosaic law with its focal point as the sacrificial practices in the temple, had to be completely supplanted. A synagogue unearthed in the year 1933 in Dura Europos, located in modern-day Syria, which dates back to the mid-3rd century, while Rome was still a pagan culture, is nearly wall-to-wall -wall with artistic images, including scenes depicting Moses confronting Pharaoh, not entirely unlike Christian iconography's depictions of various biblical narratives. Given the idolatrous context in which these communities were living, it is unlikely the Jews of the Second Temple period were strictly anti-iconic, and then an elaborate iconic tradition developed after the destruction of the Temple, when the threat of slipping into the prevailing Roman culture to escape ongoing persecution was at its highest. It is true, after the exile from Babylon, and particularly after later occupation by the Hasmonean Greeks and then the Romans, the sect known as the Pharisees became one of the more dominant voices in Second Temple Judaism. This group analyzed the history of their people and came to the conclusion a perfect adherence to the Mosaic Law was required not only for a quiet life full of God's blessing, but also to ensure the coming of the Messiah, who would once again restore Israel to be a sovereign nation in its own right. They also concluded the best possibility to ensure perfect adherence to the Law was to build what they called a fence around it. To ensure one never took the Lord's name in vain, one would never say the Lord's name at all. To ensure one kept the Sabbath as a holy day of rest, elaborate articulations would be determined to describe what was and what was not work, which would be forbidden on this day of the week. To avoid falling yet again into idolatry, they would eschew images of any kind. This approach is precisely what puts the Pharisees into such immediate conflict with Jesus when it becomes clear that he does not share this perspective on interpreting the law and takes a much deeper, more spiritual approach which, at times, could create the appearance of laxity. For example, when he had no problem with his disciples harvesting handfuls of grain as they walked along a field on the Sabbath, because the Sabbath rest is intended to enrich human life, not to be a burden upon it. It is reasonable to conclude, therefore, that at least some of the Jewish people of the Second Temple period were strict in the avoidance of images. However, we know from Flavius Josephus, the temple project under Herod the Great did include decoration of all sorts, and at the time of Jesus' incarnation, as well as at the earliest years of the church, it was the Sadducees who controlled the temple, as well as the Council of the Sanhedrin, and so it is possible any anti-iconic voices during the Second Temple period were a minority report. All of this is a long way to go about demonstrating the earliest Christian communities would be unlikely to be coming out of a strongly anti-iconic context. While some Jewish communities may have had concerns about imagery, it is clear this was not universal even at the time of the birth of the church. The Gentile converts would have been totally comfortable with such things as they were all coming from an idolatrous context, and yet we find little evidence in the Acts of the Apostles or in the various epistles to suggest that there was any confusion in the early Christian communities in making a distinction between the beautification of their places of worship and idolatry. In the tenth chapter of the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthian church, he exhorts the people to not eat at the public banquets held in the pagan temples. He goes out of his way to make it clear this is not because Christians have anything to fear from the pagan gods who are merely demons but because the focus of Christian worship is the participation in the bread and wine of Christ's body and blood, making it nonsensical to commune both with Jesus and with demons.
If there was a concern, participation in temple meals could be a slippery slope. One would fully expect St. Paul to also bring up at this time the equally slippery slope regarding iconic images in worship. And yet he makes no mention of this. The early church was under near constant threat of theological controversy. By the 15th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, we see an apostolic council held to clarify whether Gentile converts must keep the law of Moses to be considered Christian. In the seven letters to the churches at the beginning of the Revelation of St. John, we find reference to several prominent false prophets and heresies. Even before Christianity was legitimized in the Roman Empire, we have myriad writings from holy men of the church against the various Gnostic sects and false prophets who plagued many worshiping communities with their false ways. Yet in none of this material do we ever find anyone speaking out against the inclusion of imagery in worship. Given the number of Gentiles coming from an idolatrous pagan context, given the frequency with which many of them had to have their ways corrected, for example, look at the church in Corinth we mentioned earlier, to whom St. Paul had to write no less than four times in order to keep guiding them to a more clear understanding of the Christian way. It seems entirely unreasonable. There was never a case of imagery creeping incorrectly into some community's practice or that such would go utterly uncommented upon. Given the silence on the subject then, it seems more reasonable to conclude the use of imagery was not viewed as problematic, rather than to conclude no one ever made any images, and so the subject simply never came up. In fact, it is not until the rise of Islam in the regions surrounding the Byzantine Empire during the 8th century that we find any discussion of the validity of iconography. This matter was resolved at the Second Council of Nicaea, known as the Seventh Ecumenical Council, in the year 787. St. John of Damascus, which at the time of his life was a Muslim-controlled territory, wrote extensively on the matter, and his views directly reflect the decisions of the Council of Nicaea. We will quote excerpts here. But when you think of God, who is pure spirit, becoming man for your sake, then you can clothe him in a human form. When the invisible becomes visible to the eye, you may then draw his form. When he who is a pure spirit, immeasurable in the boundlessness of his own nature, existing as God, takes on the form of a servant and a body of flesh, then you may draw his likeness and show it to anyone who is willing to contemplate it, depict his coming down, his virgin birth, his baptism in the Jordan, his transfiguration on Mount Tabor, his all-powerful sufferings, his death and miracles, the proofs of his deity, the deeds he performed in the flesh through divine power, his saving cross, his grave, his resurrection, and his ascent into heaven. Give to it all the endurance of engraving and color. Have no fear or anxiety. Not all veneration is the same. Abraham venerated the sons of Amor, impious men who were ignorant of God, when he bought the double cave for a tomb. Jacob venerated his brother Esau and the Egyptian Pharaoh. He venerated, but he did not worship in the full sense. Joshua and Daniel venerated an angel of God. They did not worship in the full sense. Worship is one thing, veneration another. The invisible things of God have been made visible through images since the creation of the world. We see images in creation which remind us faintly of God, e.g. in order to talk about the holy and worshipful trinity, we use the images of the sun and the rays of light, a spring and a full river, the mind and speech, and the spirit within us, or a rose tree, a sprouting flower, and a sweet fragrance. Also events in the future can be foreshadowed mystically by images. For instance, the ark represents the image of Our Lady, the Mother of God. So does the staff and the earthen jar. The bronze serpent shows us the one who defeated the bite of the original serpent on the cross. The sea, water, and the cloud depict the grace of baptism. You must understand that there are different degrees of worship. First of all, the full worship, which we show to God, who alone is by nature worthy of worship. But for the sake of God, who is worshipful by nature, 
we honor and venerate his saints and servants. It is in this sense that Joshua and Daniel worshiped an angel, and David worshiped the Lord's holy places when he said, let us go to the place where his feet have stood. Similarly, his dwelling places worshiped as when all the people of Israel adored in the tabernacle, and they stood round the temple in Jerusalem gazing at it from all sides, worshiping as they still do. Similarly, we honor the rulers established by God as when Jacob gave homage to Esau, his elder brother, and to Pharaoh, the divinely established ruler. And Joseph was worshipped by his brothers. That kind of veneration is based on honor, as in the case of Abraham and the sons of Amor. So then, either do away with all worship, or accept it in all its different kinds. Answer me this question. Is there only one God? Yes, you answer. There is only one lawgiver. So why would his commands contradict each other? The cherubim, for example, are merely creatures. Why then does he allow cherubim, carved by human hand, to overshadow the mercy seat in the temple? Obviously, it is impossible to make an image of God, because he is infinite and changeless, or of someone like God, because creation should not be worshipped as God. But he allowed the people to make an image of the cherubim, or a finite, and lie in adoration before his throne, overshadowing the mercy seat. It was fitting that the image of a heavenly choir should overshadow the divine mysteries. Would you say that the Ark of the Covenant and staff and mercy seat were not made by human hands? Do they not consist of what you call contemptible matter? What was the tabernacle itself? Was it not an image? Did it not depict a reality beyond itself? This is why the Holy Apostle says that the rituals of the law serve as an example and shadow of heavenly things. Moses, when he came to finish the tabernacle, was told, Make sure that you make everything according to the pattern that you were shown on the mountain. The law was not an image itself, but it shrouded the image. In the words of the same apostle, The law contains the shadow of the good to come, not the image of those things. So, since the law is a forerunner of images, how can we say that it forbids images? Should the law ban us from making images when the tabernacle itself was a depiction and a foreshadowing? No, there is a time for everything. In the old days, the incorporeal and infinite God was never depicted. Now, however, when God has been seen clothed in flesh and talking with mortals, making an image of the God whom I see, I do not worship matter, I worship the God of matter, who became matter for my sake and deigned to inhabit matter, who worked out my salvation through matter. I will not cease from honoring that matter which works my salvation. I venerate it, though not as God. How could God be born out of lifeless things? And if God's body is God by its union with him, it is changeless. The nature of God remains the same as before. The flesh created in time is brought to life by a logical and reasoning soul. With this, it seems a position asserting Christianity as anti-iconic has a far larger and more pressing burden of proof than an assertion iconography has always been a part of traditional Christianity. Traditional iconography traces its roots back not only to the image not made with hands, but also to the tradition, the evangelist St. Luke painted an image of the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary, from life when he was visiting with her in the household of St. John the Theologian, while St. Luke was doing his research in order to write his Gospel account and the Acts of the Apostles. We see evidence of this research in the beginning of his Gospel account. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. Given St. Luke's narrative contains, especially in the first few chapters, 
the most of Our Lady's perspective found in any of the Gospel accounts. It is not difficult to see St. Luke, who was an artist as well as a doctor, would have had plenty of opportunity to render her image in a theologically correct manner, with the intent for its contemplation to become a part of the spiritual life of the faithful. But why does a vigorous defense of icons in Christian spiritual practice matter? Are these paintings not merely decoration? an aesthetic choice? If one is in a community which prefers a more austere space for contemplation, what's the harm? We will look at the first chapter of Genesis to see an understanding of why this might not be true. We will begin in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Human persons are made in God's image and likeness. The fathers of the church tell us this image we have is what makes humanity distinct from the rest of creation. We have the capacity to imitate God and to participate in his energies, to reflect God. To the extent we do this, we take on God's likeness. This is caught up in the incarnation of Jesus as a human person, summed up beautifully in the words of St. Gregory the Theologian. Let us become as Christ is, since Christ became as we are. Let us become gods for his sake, since he became man for our sake. Not everyone pursues Christ's likeness, but in every person there is his image, always this capacity to repent and to participate in the life, love, creativity, and joy of God's energies. No matter how depraved, this image is never lost in anyone. Throughout this episode, we have been using the words image and icon almost interchangeably. Icon is directly from the Greek word for image. While the term has taken on a technical meaning within Christianity for a specific variety of image, which has a narrow spiritual purpose, the words are essentially synonyms. Thus, we are icons of Christ. It is him in whose image we are made and into whose likeness we are to grow. The tradition of painting icons of holy persons is a way of documenting those persons whom have become known not only to bear the image of Christ within themselves, but to have taken on his likeness. In a sense, every icon painted is a portrait of Christ. The church is the body of Christ, one body with many members. Icons show us the diversity of members within this one body, but in every case, the intent of the image is for us to see Christ in and through the subject. Icons of Our Lady almost always include Christ with her and her gesturing toward him with her eyes fixed on us, beckoning us to see him. While the distinction between veneration and worship or the distinction between varieties of veneration can seem abstract and academic, there is a direct, practical application. We show no honor to the wood or to the paint itself. Our veneration passes to the reality of the person depicted. And even in this, we show honor to the person depicted only insofar as they have taken on the likeness of Christ. In the end, our contemplation, honor, veneration, and humility are toward and in the presence of Christ, who is God, not the person depicted, or to the object of the painting itself. But again, is this not merely a set of aesthetic choices? After all, in some cultures, it is common to kiss photos of loved ones, and in others, it is not. In some cultures, it is common to greet people with a chaste kiss, and in others, it is not. We mentioned a moment ago, all persons are the image of Christ. No matter whether they have come to be quite like Christ, or whether they are a lost wretch on the brink of hell, 
they are the image of Christ. Jesus warned his disciples about this, as we hear in the 25th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, O blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, and feed thee, or thirsty, and give thee drink? And when did we see thee a stranger, and welcome thee, or naked, and clothe thee? And when did we see thee sick, or in prison, and visit thee? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he will say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see thee hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to thee? And then he will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The primary call of all human persons is to live our lives in constant, humble reverence of the image of Christ within ourselves and within everyone else, both immediately around us and throughout the world. The core of all morality is rooted in this. Every choice we make in every passing present moment can be a decision to try to take on the likeness of Christ in humble service to others or to rebel. This is a difficult task. Seeing Christ and those around us is challenging at best. Many people we meet appear to us to have very little of the likeness of Christ. It can be hard to want to serve those who we think are wrong, or those who are in power over us, or those who smell bad, or those who need more than we want to give, or who curse us, or who ignore us entirely. The habit of venerating icons, the habit of humbly honoring the image of Christ in those very different from ourselves, may go a long way toward helping it become a habit to honor the image of Christ in everyone. If we can venerate an icon of Saint Mary of Egypt, in spite of all that she did in her life before dedicating it to Christ, perhaps it becomes easier not only to realize how unlike her, how unlike Christ we ourselves still are, and how crucial it is for us not to condemn those around us, for it is always possible for someone to repent and journey a vast distance from where they are toward the likeness of Christ. And so it is that on this feast day, we embrace a tradition which we can believe began with Jesus himself sending an image given to a painter on behalf of a pious man who believed that he could be healed which allows us to more clearly see Christ in every human person, including ourselves, and to strive to develop the habit of always choosing to become more like Christ by humbling ourselves in the presence of those around us. We would like to especially thank Father Simeon Keyes for his enormous help with this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Christian Saints podcast. Please be sure you are subscribed wherever you prefer to access podcasts to ensure you are notified about future episodes. We humbly ask you to rate the podcast as well, as this makes this work more visible to others. We pray this episode was edifying for you.
If so, please consider sharing it with others you care about. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter for feedback or conversation, which we would welcome. All music on these podcasts is my own, recordings of which can be found at Generative Sounds, jjm.bandcamp.com. We will close this episode by reading the Confession of Faith, which is read on the first Sunday of Lent, known typically as the Triumph of Orthodoxy, as it is found on the website of the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America. As the prophets beheld, as the apostles have taught, as the church has received, as the teachers have dogmatized, as the universe has agreed, as grace has shone forth, as truth has revealed, as falsehood has been dissolved, as wisdom has presented, as Christ awarded, thus we declare, thus we assert, thus we preach Christ our true God, and honor as saints in words, in writings, in thoughts, in sacrifices, in churches, in holy icons, on the one hand worshiping and reverencing Christ as God and Lord, and on the other hand honoring as true servants of the same Lord of all, and accordingly offering them veneration. This is the faith of the apostles. This is the faith of the fathers. This is the faith of the Orthodox. This is the faith which has established the universe.